Let's talk about bedwetting and accidents. This is a topic that becomes increasingly taboo to talk about even with friends as our kids get older. In fact, it's a challenge that we have in our house. With my background in child behavior and development, I've always viewed this very much as a behavior and emotional challenge. Bedwetting and accidents are often blamed on things like deep sleep and anxiety and behavior and emotional stress and transitions. But my guest today is a pediatric urologist, and he has helped me to see the medical side, which I hadn't given consideration to before. And I think it's important for all of us to understand a little bit more about. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you that Enrollment for the Mental Unload is currently open. This is a program that I run three times a year. It's focused on decluttering your brain and lightening your mental load. In this program, we focus on improving your well-being and your partnership. It's a systematic four-step process. If you want to learn more about it, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash unload. Remember, I only run this program three times a year, and we're starting the next round on February 11th. So make sure you grab your spot right now. That's simplefamilies.com forward slash unload. So let me start this episode off with a little warning. We're going to talk about poop and pee today. So if you're having lunch, or if this just makes you incredibly uncomfortable, then you might want to press pause. However, after learning more about healthy elimination, I feel like every child and adult should know more about this topic. In fact, it probably should be built into our health curriculums within the schools. My guest today is Dr. Steve Hodges, and he is a pediatric urologist out of Wake Forest University. He specializes in the area of accidents and bedwetting. What I'd really recommend before you listen to this episode is that you click over in the show notes, simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 253. I have a link to a 30-second video from Dr. Hodges' website. In that 30-second video, Dr. Hodges very simply illustrates the connection between poop and pee and how sometimes our kids can have too much poop backed up inside their rectum, which in fact contributes to pee accidents. Now, when I first heard this, I said, this isn't relevant to me. My kids poop every day. My kids are not constipated. Nope. But I was so surprised to learn that our kids can still be constipated and still be backed up, even if we have no idea. And that backup, which can be in many ways hidden and invisible to us as parents, can contribute or even cause nighttime pee accidents, daytime pee accidents, and poop accidents. So my goal in this conversation with Dr. Hodges was to really wrap my head around everything that I read in his books. Because sometimes the medical side can feel complicated and it can feel overwhelming, especially when we're not familiar with the terminology. So remember, first, I would recommend going over to the show notes, simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 253 and watching that quick 30 second video from Dr. Hodges. Now, I want to add the disclaimer that I always do, which is not everything that we talk about in this podcast is right for every family. So listen with an open mind and take away what resonates with you and leave what doesn't. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Dr. Hodges. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Good. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to share a little bit about how I found you because I feel a little bit like the universe led me towards you. <laughs> um, so three years ago, I have a four-year-old and a new new seven-year-old. 
And three years ago, I had a friend who sent me this text message with a link to your book. And she said, you've got to read this book because we had recently been talking about, we both had four-year-olds who were still having accidents. And, um, she's like, you got to read this book. It's by a pediatric urologist. And, um, he basically says that all accidents are caused by constipation. And I like pish posture. And I said, Oh no, no, no. My kid's not constipated. I don't need that book. And so fast forward three years and my son is still having accidents, daytime accidents, nighttime accidents. And we've kind of gone down every road possible. And I called a, a PT, a pediatric, um, a pediatric pelvic floor therapist, which is a physical therapist also to have him assessed. And, um, she assessed him and said, I think he's constipated. <laughs> and I uh-huh. said, and she's like, you need Dr. Hodges book. And simultaneously your PR person had been emailing me saying, would you like to have Dr. Hodges on the podcast? And I had been getting emails from your PR person, probably like once every couple of weeks for a couple of months. And I always, I was like, Nope, I know that. I know that guy. I don't want to talk about constipation on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he cut me. Yeah. Deep. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not doing it, not doing it. And here I am, I'm doing it because I read your books and I thought that they were eye opening. and I just, yeah, I have a lot of questions and I think it's, this is a topic that I think is really good from a medical perspective, because I think a lot of times we look at it from a social emotional perspective. Um, and I know that you have a lot of feelings about the importance of, of looking at it from the medical side. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, holistically, I guess as well, but yeah, there's a lot to it. So tell us how you got started in this. So yeah, that's a, uh, interesting story. I think I I'm a pediatric urologist by training. So that's a, a surgeon. Primarily we see patients in clinic, um, um, for surgery, for congenital problems, um, related to the kidneys and, uh, urinary tract, and, um, and genitals. Um, and, but half our clinic is, you know, usually congenital or acquired problems from, from those things. But the other half uh, ends up being, you know, uh, kids with accidents, uh, P, P accidents, bedwetting, daytime wedding. And if you go all around the country, most of those kids are seen by um, physician extenders. So, so the urologists don't take time to see them because the cookbook therapy for that has been kind of, you know, solid, uh, you know, baked in. It's like, it is what it is. If they show up, you just run through this protocol with them. And so physical therapists um, may be involved, but usually they're seen by um, PAs or nurse practitioners and they just get this protocol. At my practice, there were, there were no um, physician extenders. So I was seeing them all because my partners had no interest in it. And I was, you know, doing the typical things that they teach us in our textbook to do. And I was seeing very poor results. Um, it's a difficult problem in general to treat, but I mean, these kids were getting like no better. And so I, I thought to myself, that's really, you know, frustrating because I was, you know, I have nothing to say to them when they come back to clinic and a couple things happened all at once, much like you, the universe, uh, uh gave me us a, a moment of synchronicity, I guess. I had a child to operate on that, uh, had been treated for constipation and needed surgery for a related issue. And when I did the surgery, she was really constipated when I actually got inside of her insides and I saw she was full of poop. And so, and these parents were, you know, with it involved, um, conscientious parents that I knew were doing a good job with the laxatives. And so I was like, so that is really weird. You know, I went back after the surgery, is she taking her Miralax? Yes. She's pooping every day. She's fine. And I couldn't jive that with what I found in the surgery. The next week I went to a meeting in Cincinnati where there were some doctors that, um, um, we're giving us a program on how to deal with some congenital anomalies of um, the perineum that involve, you know, anal rectal abnormalities, which probably too much for your crowd, but basically, you know, they have problems pooping. And so these kids need help uh, with surgery and with also enemas their entire lives. And to get that enema formula down right, they would x-ray these kids. They would x-ray these kids every day until they figured out they were getting them empty and then they'd send them home on this protocol. So I said, you know what, I'm going to start x-raying people because they're doing it here. It seems like a reasonable thing to do. And my next clinic, I went back home and I got x-rays on all these kids um, that I was seeing for voiding dysfunction. And lo and behold, they all told me they were pooping fine. They're doing great. And when I got the x-ray, they had, you know, just pounds and pounds of poop at the end of the colon. And so I realized then that there was a disconnect here. And I started treating them aggressively and they were getting better. And I was like, 
oh man, I'm a genius. I'm going to win a Nobel Prize or whatever. And I went to write it up, the first stuff, and I found that this had actually all been described in like 1980s by this Dr. Sean O'Regan, who was a nephrologist whose son was wetting the bed at four, right? If you go to most doctors around the country, no one would even treat them for bedwetting. They'd say, oh, it's normal. This guy went out. He found out why his son was wetting the bed by looking at the literature. He says some of it published in the 1800s about rectal dilation and bladder dysfunction. Then he did an anal rectal manometry on his son, which is even crazier. He put a balloon up his bottom, measured his rectal tone, found out it was dilated. And then he says, I'm going to give my son enemas. This is all he came up with on his own. I'm going to give my son enemas every day. Talk about a guinea pig. Yeah, I know. (laughs) His son's a physician in Ireland. And um, he said, uh, you know, I'll do this. He emptied the rectum and the kid got better. And he started publishing all about this in the 80s. And and then it kind of got lost to history or maybe people just don't like enemas and they stopped talking about it. But it's it's out there and it's uh, been proven without a shadow of a doubt. So I I was surprised as anyone that it kind of wasn't more well understood. Right. So I had the same reaction. I mean, we'd been year after year to the pediatrician and just told it's an overactive bladder. It is what it is um, with no solution. And I have professionally potty trained before. So I feel like I have a lot of tools in my tool belt. I've worked with kids with developmental disabilities, a variety of different kids. So my kids weren't the first kids that I had potty trained. So being that I was, I've continued to have these problems year after year as my kids getting older and older, I felt like there's gotta be something else going on. You know, I've tried everything. And then also my best favorite parenting advice is when you've tried everything, try nothing. (laughs) So I've done that too. And we're still, we're kind of back at square one and I've been baffled by it year after year as to why. And it, it seems to be out of the awareness of my kid. So that, can you speak a little bit to, if you could describe, I mean, most of us are not exactly clear on, the rectum versus the intestines and the different body parts and how those are all interconnected. Yeah. So I have, I think I've worked out a pretty good theory, which I, you know, I don't know how you would prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what, what makes at least makes a lot more sense than the current theory um, of how this all takes place. And um, it's hard, you know, how, you know, you're a professional too. Like, you know, when you speak about something in your field, it's hard to know what people yeah, understand and don't. So I'll try to explain it as best I can. But basically, if you if you eat something, you know, it goes to your stomach, um, and it goes in your small intestine, um, and then it goes into your colon. Your colon is like a question mark. It starts kind of in your right lower quadrant where you people know everyone knows your appendix is there. It goes so up. So is your, the colon part of the intestine? Yeah, it is. It's the okay. large intestine. So okay. Yeah. So I, I just think of it like the small intestine gets all the nutrients out and then the large intestine just makes poop basically. Okay. So um, it gets in the large intestine, kind of moves around uh, your stomach. And then when it gets to the end of the colon, which is the large intestine, there's a thing called the rectum. And the rectum is basically like the bladder for the colon. So, you know, your bladder kind of fills up with urine and you feel it and you go pee. So the rectum fills up with poop and it stretches and then you feel it and you go poop. So it's not supposed to be somewhere where you kind of store poop. It's supposed to be like an area that once you feel it's full, you empty it and then it fills up again later. And that's what it, ha- that's what it does for every other you know, animal that has a rectum. But as a kind of a side effect of evolution, I guess, in our large brains, humans have found a way to circumvent that, especially modern kids. So they have to poop. And so, um, and you know, if you're in classroom or you're in clothes or you're playing and you don't want to go poop, you just squeeze your sphincter and the urge goes away because um, you've stopped the urge to poop. And now you don't feel the urge to poop again until you fill it more. And so take that process, which can happen, you know, to every kid pretty much. And you put it forward a few years, you have a very large amount of poop piled up at the end of the colon. And since the rectum is a muscle, you know, overstretched muscles, um, if you think about it um, just intuitively, probably doesn't, it's not as strong as a, as a normal size muscle, so it can't empty as well. So they basically develop this incomplete, delayed and incomplete emptying of the rectum. And that's not normal. And what, that can happen to anyone, right? It can happen to old people too. But what's unique in kids is that they were just infants not too long ago, right? And so a one or two-year-old, how do they pee if you think about it? They don't, think about it um, themselves, they actually just void via reflex. So there's two ways to pee, at least in babies. Uh, One is the reflex void where your bladder stretches, it gets full, and it sends a signal to your spinal cord. 
and the spinal cord just sends a signal right back to empty. And that's how like a six-month-old piece. And so it never actually gets to their brain. Once you're potty trained, that signal goes from your bladder to your spinal cord, up to your brain. You think about it, and then when you want to go, you send it back down. So I've heard you compare this to peeing and pooping like a horse. <laughs> yeah, well, which you know, makes yeah. perfect sense to me because exactly. they just go when they've got to go. There's like no, <laughs> and that's and how they, our bodies are designed, right? Right. Yeah, and that's the natural way to go. But if you and let's say you did it perfectly, right? You just peed and poop normally, then you could you could become potty trained like most of us do, and you just go to the bathroom. But if you dilate this rectum, those signals that go from the bladder to the spinal cord, they go around the rectum. And those, those nerves don't know what's stimulating them. They just do their job. So if the rectum stretches those nerves, it causes a signal to go to the spinal cord that says, I got to pee really badly. And then it, since you have this uh, infantile reflex of spontaneous voiding, it may send the reflex arc, right? Instead of just going up to your brain, it'll just go to the spinal cord, back to the bladder, empty it, and the kid doesn't even know they peed because it never got to the brain. So that's what's going. And that explains to me... That's the best explanation I have uh, seen that scientifically sound that explains why this stuff gets better with age because all these infantile reflexes do go away, right? All these little reflexes kids have, eventually, you know, they, they, they have a function, right? Like they're the way they'll turn towards a, a bottle or whatever, um, but they go away as you get older, and that's why these problems get, get better uh, with age. But if you have this dilated rectum, it, it can persist well into teenage years if you don't address it. Okay. So let me try to put that into the way that I understand this. And I will tell you that I actually understand this so much better because I read your kid's book to my kids. Um, bed abetting oh, and accidents aren't your fault. And okay, I, I learned so much from kids books and especially you you do such a great job of taking it from a complex level to a very simplified level that even kids can understand. Um, so the rectum, which is like the last stop before you go, before the poop comes out, is holding all this poop. And like, here's an example. Recently, we were in the city, we were in New York city and during COVID, I mean, it's hard to find a bathroom there period, but during COVID it's impossible to find a bathroom there. Oh yeah. And my kid told me that he had to go, he had to poop. And I was like, Oh crap. Like literally. (laughs) Um, and so we, I took him and we started like kind of running towards a department store to try to get there as fast as we could. And by the time we got there, I don't have to go anymore. (laughs) so that I feel like that's what happens, right? That signal gets lost. And then that poop, which should have come out, did not come out. And there that adds to the backup, right? Exactly. Right. And I I do think like, um, and I don't know why, um, but you know, let's say you had to go drive somewhere. You could make yourself go pee, even if you were not, um, have the urge. Whereas, uh, kids have a hard time doing that like spontaneously. They can't like just go make themselves go if they don't have the urge that they don't have good control of that. And I really can't explain that except that maybe they just don't know how to use their pelvic muscles. But yeah, I've read it, the rectum, it's supposed to be a sensing organ, not a storage organ. So exactly what you said, it's supposed to sense and empty, not store poop. And you have a good example of it right there in your, your own experience. Okay. So with it, the, now tell me why so many kids are dealing with this now. Why are so many kids constipated and how do we, if they're pooping every day, how can they still be constipated? Yeah. Okay. So the, I'll, I'll do the first one for okay. the second one first is uh, so basically what the problem is is not, and I guess we, I get myself in a lot of trouble by calling it constipation because it's not really constipation, but I don't know a better word for it, but what it really is, is not pooping on time and not emptying completely. And so I remember when I, my first phone call with Dr. O'Regan, he said, it's not constipation, Steve, it's incomplete emptying of the rectum. Um, and, and that's the best way to put it. You just can't say that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you can't Mouthful. Really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so th- that's what the issue is. So if you know that, so that if you know if your rectum is really full, you can poop 10 times a day and they, everyone thinks you're pooping okay, but you're never actually emptying. And so you're just kind of letting a little bit out each time. The old stuff um, is still stuck in there. Exactly. Or, and okay. it's not even like the, it's not even, and I, some people do say, well, think of it as like a one blockage, like, okay, when the blockage is gone, will I be better? It's that, it's that whatever percentage of poop that's in there, you're getting only a small amount of it out each time. So there may be new poop in it every time, but you're not, more's coming in than's coming out, or, or you're just not effectively emptying it. Okay. Or another relation I thought is like a big, a big you, have a, you could have like a, you know, six lane highway, there can be traffic moving through that highway uh, at a good rate of speed, but that's a lot more traffic than a two lane highway, right? You, you want it to shrink down. You want it to have a, a smaller size so it won't uh, affect the nerves. 
Okay. Now, why kids get constipated? I think, you know, I've seen, I, I would never obviously tell someone to not eat a healthy diet. Every kid should eat a healthy diet. But I, I've been amazed at how little, not that it doesn't affect it. You should have a healthy diet. But most of the people that see me, you know, are pretty plugged in parents. They're really involved. They're searching on the internet for problems. So they're not feeding their kids bad diets. You know what I mean? If they found me, they're already like really conscientious. And so, um, even if you have a perfect diet, it, it, I think it comes down to personality and genetics. And so what I mean by that is I'll see a kid and they'll be like, oh, he's really constipated. And I'll see a mom that looks just like him. I'll be like, were you constipated? And she's like, oh yeah, totally. And so something about the genetics and that's probably personality based, but why that developed, I think, you know, like we talked about the horse example, we're like too smart for own good. Like it would never occur to an animal to not go poop, right? Um, uh, your dog, you know, handles it better. Than, than a kid does but the kid dog also has a pretty you know um I, right when i say the diet doesn't matter I'm, I'm gonna say it does and that a kid a dog you know has a pretty routine diet the same every day the poops are about the same consistency same size so there's no triggering response with little kids any type of pain with voiding or defecation just just leads to a guarding reflex where they withhold and then it becomes a habit and that can be going from uh, breast milk to uh, rice cereal. It can be adding dairy. It can be adding a whole um, a table food. It can be after a viral illness or a, where you have diarrhea and then go back to solid poop after antibiotics. So any change in the poop consistency can trigger this. So once it started, it's tough to tough to get rid of. So when the rectum is full, it pushes on the bladder and causes the urine to come out spontaneously. Is that a good summary of the impact, the sort of the relationship between constipation and urine accidents. It's, 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 it's a better kind of model for maybe people to understand, but what's really happening is it's affecting the nerves. So the, the real estate, there's plenty of real estate down there actually, but the, it's causing um, the, a nerve reflex. So the nerves that go from the bladder to the spinal cord go around that rectum. And when they get stretched, stretched, they send a signal that just tells the bladder go empty. And so it happens um, without any control. It just, it goes into empty mode and there's nothing you can do to stop it when that happens. So as with most parts of our body, the, the bladder and the rectum are not separate, right? They're not separate entities. One impacts the other, which I, but that was news to me. I had no idea. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, all this, um, it, it goes deeper than that. You know, urinary tract infections, um, painful urination, frequent urination. It's all into the pelvic floor. And there's a lot of um, interrelated areas with the muscles in the pelvis as well. It's, it's a complicated topic. But, you know, if you get it working right, things just take care of themselves. So, you know, the process works fine. Like in every other animal, they just pee and poop normally. But we have to have, you know, a, a kid that's anal retentive, for lack of a better term, that's actually withholding and once you withhold and, and you disturb that kind of homeostasis then things go haywire but i do think it's important to note that yeah these accents do represent a sign of some kind of abnormality that you can fix because as um we all know that you know a lot of pediatricians will say oh they'll outgrow it it's not a problem they'll be dry when they want to and and i disagree with that sentiment so i always had the assumption that there was some connection to big transitions, emotional changes in life, because I noticed symptoms increase and accidents frequency increase during times of stress. Like when we moved to a new house, huge increase in accidents, um, just big life changes. And after reading your book, I also started thinking that usually when we're going through big changes as a family, we're also eating like crap. We're eating yeah. like frozen pizza, like cheese quesadillas, <laughs> like all these things that are probably contributing to the backup. Yeah. And that, you know, the, um, cause we have a, how do I put it? Like I see a lot of kids with like histories of, uh, you know, abuse, unfortunately. Right. And there's a lot of stress in their lives for that. And so the, and you know, there's always the kind of the, the thought, and it's not like a meme, whatever the thought of like someone scared peeing on themselves, you know, like really like frightened. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen that, you know, in, in animals and, and I guess in humans as well. Um, but no matter what the, the the associated um activity or event um at some point there has to be some kind of stimulus going to the bladder to make it squeeze right so always look for like what caused that stimulus was it like 
sure, if you're really scared at one moment, you may have an accent that we know that from the movies or whatever. But how is this happening all the time? If you have some kind of inciting event, it's probably leading to a series of events that leading to constipation. Like you said, you moved. So you thought, well, the move caused stress. But during the move, we you know, we didn't have anywhere to go to the bathroom. We were eating improperly. We got backed up and then the accidents happened. And it happens a lot with travel as well when kids don't go to the bathroom. Yeah. Well, not just kids. I feel like that's also a common adult issue too, right? <laughs> that's so weird. I have no idea. I can't explain that. It's <laughs> totally true. Yeah. So um, something I observed, I what, let's see, it was almost, it was 10 years ago, I guess I was in China and I observed that there are, and I don't, I'm not an expert in Chinese culture. This is just what I witnessed there. Um, that the kids there, the boys wear pants without crotches and they just go, they just squat and go. Um, which feels a little bit like that approach to pooping and peeing like a horse where when you go, you just go wherever you are and it makes it a very natural part of the process. And as a result, they start potty training really early. What do you think about that versus early potty training here in the U S what are your, where, how does that all impact? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. So, cause my, my, uh, my journey in this process has been, you, you know, I mean, I, I have confidence in myself, but I'm not going to go, this is what we're saying here is going against all the teachings of the whole world. Right. So it's a pretty big statement to be like, I got this right. And everyone else is wrong. And so that's not really my personality. So I'm always looking for like, okay, what, what am I missing? And so when I first started, uh, looking into this, I was like, well, based on this for sure, you should have problems if you train early, right? And we saw that in our own studies. The earlier you train, you have a kid that doesn't know what they're doing. They're like a year old. They have no idea when they should go pee or poop. So they're probably gonna withhold it. And we did see in our research that more kids had trouble if they trained early. And so every when I, there's some kind, it's almost like a philosophical, political, or religious belief in top potty training, right? If you believe in a certain type of potty training, you tend to, tend to be pretty, um, passionate about it yeah. and so i got a lot of pushback from the early potty training crowd and um there's actually some pretty mean articles out there um from the elimination communication people about me but <laughs> one of the uh one of the uh main points would be like well in china they train really early and i was like what in the world that makes no sense so i looked it up and i found out about the split pants and i was like well that explains it right because the most natural way to pee and poop as an infant or baby would be to go whenever you want so if you're in diapers that works if you're out in the middle of nowhere like in a very impoverished country maybe where you can go anywhere that works but in China, it works because they have these split pants. So I say that's great for China, but guess what? I don't think America would want people peeing and pooping like on the playground or in the grocery store, which is what happens. And so that's that explains it. So the, the moment America is okay with people peeing on the slides at the playground, then I think we could do that. But short of that, the only way we can recreate that process in America is with diapers because otherwise kids are they're too busy. They're too clothed. They don't have time to get to the bathroom. Yeah. I'm glad or you brought that up. If you're eliminating an elimination communication practitioner and you carry a potty everywhere with you, I guess that would kind of re replicate this. Yeah. Yeah. But you'd have to uh, really get on it at the time. So yeah. And you know what? And, and I, this is uh, just as kind of an olive branch to that I, I think, and I've learned, I know now that this is all um, genetic predisposition. So if you have 20 kids and 10 of them got constipated and they don't have the genes for overactive bladder, they will be fine. And so I'm not saying that it's okay to be constipated, but you could train a kid very young. And if they withheld, if you have no history of any problems in your family, they might be okay. But if you're looking at a population-based um, philosophy um, to provide the best health and the less accidents from everyone, then you know, um, training them late until they're old enough to know what they're doing is a better strategy. Um, and I just, the thing I worry about the EC, not that uh, people can do what they want. I'm just worried about picking up the cues appropriately because, you know, when you have the people, parents of kids that are constipated, they never knew, right? So they didn't know, they had no idea. So anytime you're doing that, you can do training however you want. But if you notice accents, don't ignore it. Um, know where it's coming from and be aggressive with it. Okay. So early potty training doesn't necessarily lead to these backup issues later on, but there could be a correlation for some kids, depending on their genetic. Exactly. And their personality okay. and stuff. Well, some kids do great. And so I used to be dogmatic, but I realize, you know, it's not really helpful because it doesn't really apply. And there's, and I don't want to make it seem like I'm explaining away the outcomes, but there are actual studies, right. Where they did um, in animals and humans, where they 
did dilation of the rectum to see how it affected the bladder, and it varied per subject. So some people had bladder overactivity. Some people peed less. They could hold their pee more. Some people peed the same. So you never know, and I would um, – in general, you know you want to poop regularly and get it out, but you're not going to condemn your child to accidents if you train them early. It's just a, a risk that you have to be aware of. Okay. That's helpful. I'm going to pause for one minute for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll come back and chat some more. The sponsor for today's episode is Native. Native is an aluminum-free deodorant that is a great addition to your 2021 routine. My husband and I have been using Native for years, and I appreciate that the ingredients are things that I've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. They also have a line of sensitive deodorants for people with baking soda sensitivities. They have plastic-free deodorants if you're trying to cut down on your plastic consumption, and even an unscented option if you're all about keeping your natural scent. And now you can subscribe to Native so you never have to sweat about running out of deodorant again. Make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com simple, or use the promo code simple at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash simple, or use the promo code simple at checkout for 20% off your first order. You might be able to find native on the shelves of your local store, but using that link and coupon code, you're going to get the best price and the best variety. Give it a try. I think you're going to love it. Back to today's episode. All right, Dr. Hodges, I have a couple questions from my audience members. Actually, I had a lot of people asking the same questions. The first one is, what do you think is going on with a kid that is a camel and can just hold it for like six, eight, 10 hours and seem perfectly fine? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. So just exactly what I said previously. So we have a condition which I don't know how it's allowed to be used anymore because it's not very politically correct, but called lazy bladder syndrome, which is not a judgment on the child, but it's just a bladder that doesn't empty very often. And and I, I hate almost saying this because people are going to be like, this guy blames everything on constipation. But the treatment for lazy bladder You are the constipation is, guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, And I don't want to be like, you know, when you have a whatever, you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. But yeah. there, there's, there's basis on this that if you have um, – if you're one of that subset of the population where rectal dilation leads to less bladder overactivity, then that can be the cause. So if you have a child that pees um, voids rarely um, and they're constipated, then tr- treating constipation will help with that. And so it's not really a problem to, to avoid rarely unless you're having um, you know, accidents at some point or infections or something, but that is typically associated with it. So they just happen to be in that subset of people that when they get their rectum dilated, it makes their bladder work less. Interesting. So it might not be a problem, but if you do notice um, urgency and that sort of thing, then there might be something to check in. If you hold it too long, you know, you can have, you know, infections, uh, especially with girls. Um, And some kids will hold it all day and then have bedwetting. So I think it's better if you, if you have a child like that and parents says, well, you know what, their poops are huge. They go rarely, Uh, you know, giving them something to help them poop more regularly is a good idea. Okay. So what about the hider, the kid who hides to poop? And poops in that poops in their pants or like crouches in the corner of the room, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's uh, been associated with constipation in numerous studies. It's a big deal, um, and it's a it's a bad sign. And like, and I go back to the horse analogy. You know, like I think um, you heard me talk about it, where I was horseback riding with kids, and the and the horses were just pooping as we went along. And I compare that in my brain because I'm always thinking about poop to a kid. You know, like <laughs> stopping their playing and going in a corner and being leave me alone. I got to poop, and like how much they're in their head. So it's, it's, it, I would rather have a kid poop like a horse than poop like a kid that's hiding. So definitely hiding to poop. Uh, and parents will be like, oh, they, they have good control of their poop because they just ask for their pull-up and they go in the corner and they do their business. I'm like, that's, you know, it's okay to like pause what you're doing, but that's a little bit too much in their head if, if they're having to make a, a, a federal case out of it. So I'd rather have them kind of poop without so much, uh, so much of their brain involved. So you think those kids are holding a lot? For sure. They're definitely constipated. It, it, it hurts them. That's why they're hiding. And if you're okay. going to hurt, you're not going to empty it out. So, and, and that's something I imagine you see a lot is that it hurts to go. So they hold it and then they develop this backup. That's basically all this in a nutshell. Like how, you know, how everyone, everyone's different, right? I mean, there's a million different personality variations. It comes down to if your poop hurts, are you going to let it out or are you going to hold it? And what's your threshold? And that varies with uh, uh, every person and the people that let it out, they do fine. The people that decide, 
I don't like it, it's going to hold it in, do worse, and, and it can vary along that spectrum as well. How soft does it need to be for your child to poop comfortably? And that varies for every, every child. Okay. And that's where Miralax and that sort of thing, laxatives. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Come sure. in. So what about the relapser? So I got a question that said, my daughter's been potty trained since she was 22 months, but during COVID she started peeing on the floor. I know it's a behavior issue, but my mother-in-law insists it's a UTI. So peeing on the floor, I'd have to get a little bit deeper into that. Like there's a child walking around, um, and, and, you know, underwear and then purposefully taking underwear off and voiding on the floor or are they just having accidents and it, so if, if they're purposely peeing i have a couple kids like this like they can control it and they're just not going in the bathroom that's a little bit beyond my area that's more of a maybe a developmental site kind of thing like why they would want to go somewhere other than the toilet but if they can't control it and they're going on the floor then that ties in exactly what we're talking about and, and kids that develop this stuff late there's usually a reason, right? They, they potty trained, they were fine for a couple of years, and then maybe something happened, a school environment, a preschool, um, dietary changes, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was something simple as an antibiotic for an ear infection, and they, they started withholding, it became a habit, and they got backed up enough to cause accidents. And so um, always rule out that stuff. There's a couple of, you know, significant but rare medical issues that can be behind this, but the vast majority are um, – are, are, um, from constipation. Okay. So let me wrap my head around that. I'm thinking about the impact of antibiotics. Do antibiotics cause constipation as a side effect? What I see mostly is that, um, it's that change in, in texture, right? Okay. So it, it, when it goes from firm, so you will have a kid that gets antibiotics, they get like watery diarrhea, which typically can happen with some antibiotic, water diarrhea, water diarrhea, and then they stop it and the next poop is firm and they withhold. So this is usually okay. for young kids, but it's that change. It's going from soft poop to hard poop. And that's why adding rice cereal or adding uh, dairy or, or, or table food can in, um, precipitate this as well. Okay. So the change from exclusively breast milk or formula to table food. Yeah, they, they don't like that change in how it feels. Okay. Some kids, you know, even when they're born, it's funny. There's a condition called dyskesia where right when they're born, they're eating breast milk. Their poop is like mustard, and they still withhold it. They freak out when they're pooping, and eventually they learn, that, okay, this doesn't bother me, and they do fine. But then six months later, you add rice cereal, and they start developing holding again. Okay. So I'm thinking about, you mentioned the transition to preschool that can happen then. And often, I mean, me being someone from the developmental psychology field, I'm thinking about the emotional impact of transitioning to a new environment and how that can have impact on behavior. And I'm thinking about it from a behavioral perspective, but from a medical perspective, it could be that they're holding because they're in a new environment and they don't feel comfortable going. Yeah. Think about all, that's why I tell parents, like, if you're going to go to a new place, What's the bathroom look like? Have you even been in it? Does it have toilet paper? Is there like privacy? Can they lock the door? Are they scared to go alone? Is the toilet, you know, some toilets flush really loud. So there's all these reasons that you may never predict that a kid would not want to go there. And, you know, as I, you know, most people don't want to um, poop in public anyway, right? And there's a whole movie character based on that concept from American Pie. And so this is something that I think parents, especially with kids with accents, need to know every like time you have an open house, once we're actually back in school, um, to, to understand, okay, where's the bathroom? What's your bathroom policy? Are they clean? Are they well-stocked? Are you comfortable going? Because some kids, you know, we need to make special, you know, dispensations for, like use the teacher lounge or something more private so they can go because otherwise they just will not go to the bathroom. Yeah. I actually remember my elementary school bathroom was gross and the toilet paper was gross. Like it was like little brown squares of toilet paper. I just not an ideal atmosphere for, getting kids to relax and do what they need to do at any time of the day. I'll, I'll tell you a funny anecdote is we have one, our very first book uh, is um, it's no accident. We had a um, project clean. Uh, Tom Keating did a chapter on, uh, cause he, he, he's basically job is to keep bathrooms clean in schools. That's his like passion. He's been doing it his whole life. And so we let him atta- uh, uh, work with us on that because uh, we know how important it is to have good bathrooms in schools. And, um, and the stories he told me were amazing. Some, you know, kids were um, given like a square of toilet paper at a time because they couldn't, you know, trust them with all the toilet paper. There were no doors, you know, so he's seen really bad bathrooms. And so that needs to be addressed. But we have one other issue of our book. I mean, one other uh, publishing of our book in another language that's in Korean. It's in South Korea. And they took that chapter out because they like had no understanding of that concept. They're like, what do you mean 
a dirty bathroom. It's like doesn't exist in Korea. (laughs) So they're like, uh, yeah, that we don't, that doesn't happen here. So we had to take the chapter out. Wow. That's America has lousy bathrooms. (laughs) Okay. So what about the kid who it's an emergency? Like they don't have to go. And all of a sudden it has to happen right now. My daughter does this. Like we'll be in the car driving down the highway and all of a sudden she has to go right now, like immediately there's no holding. Yeah. And so I used to, uh, you know, early on, the, a lot of the traditional therapy is okay. Kids don't like to pee. They wait till the last minute. So make them pee on a schedule. Right. So I would have kids pee every two hours. They would get no better having pee every hour. I've had parents have a kid try to sit on the toilet every 30 minutes. It's, you know, it's, it's dominating their lives and they would never pee. And then they would get up and have an accident. So what you have to think about it is um, that usually they're not pooping on time, but they're peeing at a reasonable time. And what I mean by that is, uh, a couple of examples, like go home like right now and, and hold your pee till you have an accent. Do that. And the answer is you cannot do that because you will have such a strong urge. Your brain will make you go to the bathroom. And so that happens because there's a gradual rise. You feel it, and then it becomes so um, uncomfortable that you have to go pee. These kids with the constipation issues, that curve of the rise is more steep. So they may have zero urge and all of a sudden severe urge. So that urge comes on so suddenly that they may not even be able to get to the bathroom. They're more focused on curtsying or squatting or holding it until that urge goes away, and then they don't want to go to the bathroom again. So I've had kids that had horrible behavior. The parents blamed them, not peeing, not peeing, and they couldn't do the bowel program. So we said, okay, we'll do a surgery, right? We jumped to Botox, which is a very effective bladder-relaxing medication if needed. And those kids, when the Botox worked, they peed completely normally the next month without any behavioral changes. So that really struck me as like, this is not a brain problem. This is a bladder problem. Interesting. So what about the denier? Like both my kids will deny, deny that they have to go. And then like, literally I'll have like my son, like, do you have to go? Do you have to go potty? And no, I don't have to go. Do you have to go? No, I don't have to go. And then he could be going and still say he doesn't have to go. (laughs) Do you see this a lot? There are two things that I cannot explain, but I can tell you they're very consistent. I mean, they are literally, I've never not seen it. That is number one. A kid will never say they have to go pee if you ask them. I've I've never had a key. So that is so consistent. Like literally (laughs) it's never happened where I go, where parents says, I told them they have to go pee. And they said, yeah, you know what? You're right, mom. I'll go pee. Um, That never (laughs) happens. And the other is that, you know, we talked about the accent being uh, the the bladder spasm happening in the pelvis. So it doesn't get to their brain. So they can't control it. But then once the pee's out right in their clothes, they're wet, but they don't know. And I, I can't explain that well other than it's very common so these kids they'll be walking around and they're soaking wet and the mom will say you peed on yourself and they'll be like what do you mean and look down and see the pee so it becomes so disconnected from their brain that they don't even notice the wetness which doesn't make sense because they're you know neurologically normal but but it's very consistent it's just part of the process and so that you would recommend they go down your mops route, which we're oh, going to yeah. talk about. Okay. Sure. So I first started off because our PT, our um, pelvic floor therapist said, you need to read It's No Accident. And that's the book that was recommended to me a couple years ago. So I read that book first and I, I found it eye-opening. There were so many things from the medical perspective that I hadn't considered at all. Um, but then I found out that you have this newer book and you have the children's book. So I, and I read the newer book, the mop book, which came out this year, right? Yep. Well, we do, we kind of update it. And and that's a great part of having people online is that I'm updating it all the time based on feedback. And it's like having a active clinical trial, you know, going on in real time. Good. And I love that the fact that you are open to changing your philosophy as you see changes within your community as well. Yeah, and the, and the things that work or consistently work, it's it's impressive. You'll see a lot of people repeating the same things over and over again. So it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah, so I read It's No Accident. I thought that was kind of more of the why book, and this, the Mott book, is more of the how, like how you proceed forward. Is that, do you feel like that captures oh, yeah. it? yeah, that's a okay. great way to put it. Um, and I thought both were really valuable. Um, but also the kids' book, Bedwetting and Accidents Aren't Your Fault. I thought that was just, it was eye-opening for everybody. And I think just teaching our kids about healthy elimination. I mean, I think every kid should read that book, whether or not they have elimination problems, because this isn't something that's taught in health class. I don't ever remember in a health class learning about healthy elimination and what healthy poop look like versus unhealthy poop. Is that ever taught? 
Other than no, a medical school? <laughs> no, no, it's not. You know, even a medical school, like I, I, I have partners in my own department that do what I do that, you know, don't not that they don't care about it, but they're just kind of, you know, it's just not I don't know why it gets a uh, short shrift. But um, Dr. You know, Tom Keating, uh, who who did the project clean for the bathrooms, he, he had this three uh, E philosophy. And I thought that was pretty, pretty clever. You know, we all know about eating. We all know about exercise. But what about elimination? If you don't have all three, you really can't be healthy. And so it's it's I always joke that, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty immature guy. You can ask my wife. I, I, I don't make very mature jokes or whatever but for this topic somehow i can like maturely think about it be like look you know we have to we have to talk about this we have to take care of this and and i've had you know really buttoned up scientists be like oh you're talking about poop and and not be able to even have a discussion on it so i think uh, as a human as a humanity as a nation we need to be like okay look this is a real problem we have to deal with it as adults and not just and not just uh, joke about it because even like um if kids need enemas you know parents are like, oh, that's, that's a horrible therapy. You know, if it were any other disease process and the animal would cure it, I, I can't imagine they would be opposed. But because accents are seen as just like a childish behavior, not a real problem, it kind of gets um, ignored. So your approach in general, the whole MOP approach is viewed as some, by some, including some physicians as extreme. What are your thoughts about that? And what do you recommend if someone wanted to take this approach and their pediatrician or their other physicians didn't agree with it? Yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunate if the doctors won't help um, because I'd rather have a, you know, a hands-on physician on board, but I, you know, I would put it to them and say, you know, okay, what's your, what's your alternative? You know, what's, what's the therapy that you recommend? Cause you know, I don't, I'm not so um, uh, caught up in myself that if they get better with something else, I'm upset. I want everyone to get better. So if they get better with another program, that's great. I just haven't seen another program work as effectively. And if you take it down to like, you know, Occam's razor, you know, we have this problem, what's the fastest way to fix it? Straight line. And, and that's what it is. And so if your pediatrician offers a better therapy that works, that's great. But if you're at a a patient, write me, I get a lot of these letters. It's funny. And I, I don't mean to make light of it, but they'll say, you know, my, I have, my child had this problem for years. I found your stuff. I did enemas. They were doing better. But then my mother-in-law or my mom or my doctor said enemas are bad. So I stopped him and now he's worse again. What do I do? <laughs> and I'm like, I think you answered your question, you know? And so I, I, I do encourage people to work with their family physicians, but if not, you know, we do have a lot of resources online for over-the-counter therapies that can be very effective with uh, minimal uh, physician guidance. Okay. So in your first book, It's No Accident, you advocated for an oral laxative clean out. But it, since then, since your new book com- came out, it sounds like you have new evidence that leads you to want to go straight to the enema approach. Is that accurate, the change between the books? Yeah, yeah for sure. And this whole, this whole kind of journey has been one of me going, uh, thinking of a therapy, thinking it may be too much and then not wanting to do it and then realizing it was the best therapy. And that started with... Um, um, enemas early on where for the first book, I was like, oh, no one's going to do enemas. This is, you know, I'll just try Miralax. And, and I was, it was just new to me. And I was just seeing, you know, I'd cured like, you know, some neighbors just by saying, take Miralax over the, you know, on, as I passed them on the street. And so I was saying, you know, this is going to be easy. And as I got a larger and larger patient pool from all over the country, all over the world, I was getting these much more complicated cases. And I realized that, you know, enemas were more effective and why not use them if that's the best therapy? And the same thing has happened with Xlax too. You know, I was using a lot of Miralax um, early on because it's easy, and some people oppose Miralax for various reasons. But I found that um, to fill up the rectum with, if it's dilated, you have to use a lot of Miralax. So sometimes it's better to use Xlax, which can make you empty before you get filled. And um, I, and I was afraid to use it, but I met with some you know doctors, learned how safe it can be and how widely it is used. And I've had some good success with that very recently. So that's the most recent change. So we've added a lot of XLAX to our, to our protocol. Okay. And I think that this in general, it's just, it's, it can be a fast process and it can be a long process, right? Yeah. The main thing is, um, I don't, two mistakes parents make. One is that they give up too easy. They say, Oh, it's not, um, working and they give up. You want to, you want to, um, make sure that you're committed, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to be an overnight, even with, if there's just bedwetting, it usually takes longer than, uh, one to three months. Um, so stick with the program and make sure that you, you, um, are doing it correctly. But the other problem is some kids, parents will just start enemas and just not look back. And then six months go by and they're like, well, I've been doing enemas for six months. Why am I not better? You can't let too much time go by because just the, 
act of doing the enema does nothing by itself. The, 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 the way you cure them is by fixing the rectal dilation. So if you're doing enemas and you still have rectal dilation, you've done nothing. So you have to find an enema composition and type and protocol that leads to our goal. And it may be a large volume enema, it may be a small volume enema, it may be Miralax, it may be Xlax. Every kid's different and I can't predict who will get better faster. But I know that if you're doing something and after four weeks you've, need so, you've not seen progress, we either need to change protocol or get an x-ray or both. So for people who are not familiar with enemas, this is kind of how I envision them working and tell me if this is wrong. This is how I explained it to my husband. So basically it's kind of like if you clean out a kid's ear and you use peroxide or whatever solution and the solution goes in there and it kind of breaks up the earwax until the earwax comes out. So with the, is that what the enema is doing basically on the impacted poop? Yeah, so it does a couple of things. It causes an influx of fluid. So you're going to have a dried out poop. It's going to make it more moist. It's going to be softer. And then um, it also causes um, um, contract contractions of the rectum. So you're making the poop softer. You're making the area around it squeeze. So you're leading to, to easier emptying. And so, yeah, I think it's in a sense you have this blockage. Um, I, I hate saying blockage. Since you have this uh, big mass in the way of a small opening uh, coming up from below is a lot easier than pushing it from behind uh, as Miralax would do. Okay. So then once the, the backup is removed, then you, it's not fixed necessarily because you still have the rectum, which has been stretched out because of this prolonged period of retention of bowels. So then you have to keep it empty. That's a two-step process. You said it perfectly. You have to empty and then you have to keep it empty. So the tone is restored. And so that that's a little tricky because a lot of parents will be like, well, okay, they're full. I get it. I saw the x-ray. Can we just go to the hospital and get me cleaned out? And it's like, well, you know, you could, but that's not fixing it. And there may be a role for that, but that's not going to, it's just going to fill up again uh, as they eat and they won't feel the urge to poop until it fills up. So you really need to have an enema that, you know, gets them empty every day. Um, And that's the key. Okay. Good. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been so enlightening. I feel like it's kind of opened up a whole new world of thought for me thinking about bedwetting and accidents from a medical perspective, because like I said, I had always really approached it from an emotional and behavioral perspective. And I think we need to make sure that we're giving it a holistic view. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm, I'm really grateful for giving us a platform to spread the word because I think it's important. I'm, yeah, I'm talking about poop is probably a hard sell, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is, unfortunately. Um, but, but it's important. Thank you, Dr. Hodges. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm going to put the links to Dr. Hodges' books in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 253. And remember, enrollment for the mental unload is now open. Go to simplefamilies.com forward slash unload to grab your spot. We start on Thursday, February 11th. Thanks again and have a good one.